Amen. You can grab a seat. Glad you're here. My name is Ben, one of the pastors at Hope Church. If you've got a copy of the Scriptures today, we're going to be in uh, Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, we're not going to jump around too much, so you can just settle at Hebrews chapter 2. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, please don't panic. We'll have it on the screen. Or we would love to gift you a copy of the Scriptures uh, on your way out. So, think with me about who you are when it comes to waking up in the morning. When you wake up, are you a happy person, a mad person? What are your thoughts when you first wake up in the morning? Uh, Rachel and I have noticed a pretty big distinction between ourselves and our children in that way. Uh, some of our kids wake up ready to like scream and fight. Some of them wake up happy and ready to dance around. I definitely am in the second camp. Rachel's definitely in the first camp. You don't want to talk to her for about a half hour, 45 minutes, let that tea settle in, and then you can begin to ask her about her day and what's going to be happening with her. When you wake up in the morning, though, and you have your first thoughts for the day, what fills your head up? If you're like me, uh, it's, i got to turn off the alarm. That's the very first thought. The alarm's going off, the kids are still asleep, you need to turn it off, and you see so you wake up in a panic, and then you turn that off, then maybe you start to think about what's going on today. Is this going to be a good day or a bad day? What are my tasks for the day? And as I've gotten older, I've started to have a, a second category. Um, once I think about what do I need to do today, I pretty quickly begin to think of what are the things that I absolutely can't do today. This is a little heavy, but for people who have struggled with addiction, or for Christians, we should be in the same camp, you've admitted that there are practices in your life that are destructive and that you're compelled to. You know both of those facts. Both that it is destructive and that you're compelled to it. And if you're in a period where you are fighting that destructive behavior when you wake up in the morning, one of the first thoughts you may have is of the things you have to do today. But quickly after that, you may start to think about the things you absolutely can't do today. And if you are a reader of the Scriptures, if you're somebody who says that you already follow Christ and you don't have that fearful second category, I'm going to push you a little bit and say that's a problem. If, though, you're investigating Christianity and you're going through this series on Does Jesus Work? One of the things that people across the nation, across the world, across different um, sociological backgrounds all agree on is that people have found Jesus to be effective as a means of personal change. But how does that work? There's 12-step programs, there's all kinds of stuff in the world, but really, how does Jesus work when it comes to changing our behaviors? And I hope you come to a place, we're going to go through some of the different categories biblically. I hope you've come to a place, though, where you started to identify that everything that you do is not always awesome. <laughs> okay, we can admit that. Well, then let's start moving back from there. Maybe everything you do isn't always even great or helpful 
constructive, maybe. Some of the things that you do are destructive to yourself or others. How do you stop? Biblically, the word is sinning. How do you stop doing bad things? And how does Jesus help you to do it? Well, the way that most of us assume you go about stopping a bad thing is you just stop. David talked about it this morning when he was talking earlier about those shirts that say, like, be kind. Well, there's the end of the argument. Just be kind. Okay, yeah, we're all going to agree to that as a category. I should be kind. But how? How do I be kind to that guy? Oh, that guy. Can't be kind to that lady. Whoever it is, what's the power to actually... Changing. There's a funny sketch by uh, Bob Newhart. I think he was like a guest on Mad TV, if you remember that. It was like one-time challenger to SNL and then kind of went away. But they had a very, very funny sketch with uh, Bob Newhart, who played a psychiatrist. And this lady came in because she was struggling with uh, this fear. She was afraid that she was going to get buried alive, buried alive in a box. She was, and so Bob Newhart said, well, the, this is the way this works. I only do five minutes of counseling. If it goes beyond five minutes, then it's free. But the first five minutes are $5. Uh, is that okay? And she said, well, yeah. And he said, okay, uh, I want you to listen very carefully. Um, you're claustrophobic? And she said, yeah. He said, okay. Stop it. He just leans over the desk and yells at her to stop it. And she goes, excuse me? And he goes, stop it. Stop it? Yeah, stop it. You don't want to go around your life just always being scared of being buried in a box, do you? She said, no. I said, well, then just stop it. <laughs> she said, well, but when I was a kid, he went, no, 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 we, we don't go there. Just, just stop it. And it's very funny, and he works her through, <laughs> she starts to talk about the way that her mother interacted with her or the way that her coworkers, and every time she does, he just cuts her off and says, no, 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 we don't go there. Just, just stop it. And she kind of works through a couple of different fears that he ha- she has, and he keeps telling her, stop it. What are you, nuts? Don't do that. No, stop that. Stop. And I think that that's a cultural reaction to destructive practices. If you know that it's bad, just stop. The question is how? What's the power to change? If our culture just uses the words stop it, as the band-aid what do you get how does that format of change really work out well you get pharisees that's a very um live big kind of nuanced category in the new testament this category of the pharisee who says by my will i will do so that i can be proud of who i am This Bob Newhart character, by saying stop it, kind of brings that out. And it's funny because we know that it doesn't work. You either do stop it to some degree and you become proud. Those people are the worst ones to be around. Or you don't stop it. You try and you fail. And because you fail, you give up on trying. And so you go way further down that destructive path than you would have. But there's a third category, which is you stop some things and you just redefine all the other things that you can't stop. And it happens in the sketch. She says, well, I wash my hands constantly. And he goes, well, that's okay. You can do that. (laughs) There's, There's 
germs everywhere. You, you should wash your hands. That's okay. I wash my hands all the time. Okay, he just redefined, like, okay, germophobia and claustrophobia are phobias. Why is one better than the other? Well, you see that kind of inconsistency all throughout humanity. We can't hold up the burden of the laws we give ourselves, and so we just start to monkey with it. And the Bible is incredibly perceptive in the way that it describes the kinds of things that are destructive. I think this is one of the places where you can see that the Bible's true in how perceptive it is about the kinds of things that break us or that we do to break others. Second Timothy 3, we get one of these lists of sins that you see in Scripture. It happens somewhat frequently where they say, like, here are the kinds of things that God hates. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, 4, people will be lovers of self. If you just polled 25 people on the street and said, is it a bad thing to love yourself? What would they say? Do you think you would get one person who would say that was not a good thing? Take a second and smoke on that. Lovers of self, lovers of money. We can maybe admit that's not a good thing, but golly, we all do it. Proud. That underlies almost all human activity. Arrogance, very similar. Abusive, very quick to step on somebody else if they're in your way. Disobedient to their parents. Now, Paul does this again in Romans, and it's so crazy. He says something in the Romans passage where he says, he's talking about how awful these people are, and then there's another one, and then he says, inventors of evil. And you're like, what? Like a mad scientist who's in his lab inventing evil. And then right after that, in the same category as that, he says, disobedient to parents. And we're all supposed to go, oh, no. Who are these crazy, terrible, awful people that would disobey their parents? Yes. In this world, there are those that are disobedient to their parents. But it's... In the Ten Commandments, God gives you structure and gives you parents. To disobey them is your first act of rebellion against authority, love, God's structure, and God. Tell me that's not training wheels for all the other sins you see here. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless unappeasable oh my gosh when we talk about the great like plagues on modern culture being boredom and tedium that's where we're at we're in a world where everything is just so awesome that all you kind of are able to do is say i'm bored when i go to spotify we have a spotify account when i go to spotify and i think what do i want to listen to i don't have a good answer i can listen to literally anything and that knowledge almost pulls the rug out from everything that I might want to listen to. Unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, that's the whole point of this sermon, brutal, not loving the good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And I think that's, it's called an inclusio maybe. Can you go back one? 
But it's the idea that the first and the end or towards the end are the same. Lovers of self, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. There's an idea there that you have to choose. Now, ultimately, the worship of God and the choice of God will lead to your greatest pleasure. But if you're just saying to yourself, here's what I want, here's what God says, I have to choose. And then the last one there, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Now, based on that list, is there anything in your life that needs to change? When I think about trying to change, I immediately think about a conversation I had with a friend. We were 16, 17 years old. We were driving uh, downtown to play in this uh, basketball league, and uh, we're just talking. And honestly, I was just kind of unloading a little bit. He's my buddy. We'd been on a ball team together for years, and I was telling him about some stuff I was doing that I didn't need to be doing. I wanted to change, and he was like quick to say that he did those same things. And I was like, yeah, I mean, you know, it's hard to to stop. And he's like, well, I can stop whenever I want. I said, really? Have you ever tried? And he went, (laughs) (laughs) you laugh because it's like, no, well, no, I've never tried, but I could, I could stop whenever I want. Couldn't I? And he realizes that the snake that he's staring at has coiled itself around him. And he thought he was fine. In Jungle Book, the little snake that sings, Trust in me, the little snake is singing and he thinks he's fine. And then he realizes he's already in death's grip. Biblically, that's happening constantly. How do we change? That's not just this cultural idea of just stop it. Just, just stop it. Well, God has, throughout Scripture, an almost unlimited number of medicines for this. But as you canvas scripture, I think one, not the, but a one of those medicines that's powerful is (laughs) Jesus. And of course, that's just such a big word for this. But looking to Jesus, this is what it says in Hebrews chapter two. This is where we're going to be studying today. Hebrews chapter two, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Now, if you're just reading that, it kind of sounds like just Bible words and lots of different Bible words about Jesus. Great. But in these verses is is a description of the gospel, which is for us our help when we're being tempted. It's saying that we need to see in Jesus, going to Jesus, both his love for us and the price that he's paying. What we're going to do in order to change the the biblical prescription for the problem of can't change destructive practice, I think begins with, and it's one of the prescriptions, there's others, but begins with seeing Christ, seeing his love and the price that he paid, seeing Christ, and then going to him. 
Let's start with just seeing him. The whole of Hebrews to this point, Hebrews chapters 1 and 2, is trying to show us how high Jesus is. Telling us that he's greater than the angels. That he's certainly greater than the other prophets. That he is higher than the revelation that was given through those other prophets, being himself the word of God. That not only is he greater than the angels, he's worshipped by the angels. He's not an angel. The Bible's clear that God is God. He created angels and created everything else. People, plants, snails. He created a thing, a group of things that are angels. And Jesus being God is higher than the angels. And there's a part of you as you read through Hebrews chapter 1 where you're kind of like, okay, I get it, that's fine. And it keeps making the point. And part of the way that it, it, the reason that it keeps making that point is it can show you by showing you how much greater Jesus is than the angels, just how great Jesus is. It says that he is not an angel, but himself, the son of God. And then it elaborates by saying that he is both the creator and the one who will roll up creation like a robe. Again, wrap your mind around that. And then, seeing him as high as he is, understand that he became our merciful and faithful high priest because he was made like his brothers in every respect. How high he was to how low he goes. Jesus being born, I, I think about this and I don't really know, I'm, I'm kind of beyond theology at this point. Like what did Jesus know or feel or experience being God and then being born? Like being aware? It's God's mercy that you don't get long-term memories until you're three years old, right? Those first three years you can just wipe out, you don't have to worry about or think about or try to remember nursing or, you know, like all of those things can just be gone, and you can start at three years old and go from there. But Jesus, he's Jesus. Who knows what he knew or remembered? Obviously, he knew what would be happening as he's contemplating it before he becomes Jesus. But he becomes born. He's born to the poorest of the poor. Then lives his life in that family among those poor people and doesn't seem to change anything. It's not like this rag to riches story where Jesus was born to Joseph and then 10 minutes later, Jesus shows him some new way to joint stuff or whatever and he becomes the builder for the emperors and then all of a sudden they're rags to riches. No. He just stays poor and stays Jewish and just keeps working. Do you know that Jesus was hungry? Almost all my kids ask me for is food. Very little in the way of like real conversation with them. They're mostly just asking for a snack. But they've never really been hungry. Not really. They've always lived in a house where they could walk up to either a cabinet or a refrigerator, and when they open it, it will almost bury them in food. They've always known that. I don't think they can conceive of not that. And honestly, not many of you can either. Most of us have much more of a problem with deciding what we want to eat than deciding if we'll be able to eat. Do you understand that Jesus, the Son of God, went without food? Voluntarily in a fast, but also just being hungry. 
Why would God allow His Son to submit Himself to that level of want so that He can be like you in every respect? And of course, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Of course, He was hungry and He went way further. He experiences rejection, homelessness, not just being poor, but having nothing. When they put him on a cross, the entirety of his estate was a robe. The one he happened to be wearing at the time. He was misunderstood. He was reviled. He was bullied. He was hated. He was beaten and eventually lynched. Why? Why would one so high go so low voluntarily? Because he loves you. So that when you go to him as your great high priest, you can say to him, Jesus, I feel this. And he can go, that really hurts. I felt that too. In every respect, he can be like you in order to be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. Seeing him in his love is only part of it. I also want you to see him in the price that he paid for your sin. It's very important. Let's get to it. When Jesus dies on the cross, not only is he going through tremendous physical pain and torture, he's also going, and this is maybe the main point of most of those crucifixion stories, through all Almost unendurable emotional, spiritual pain and torture. Jesus spends his ministry trying to bring people back to God because to be with God is heaven itself. We talk about it fully known, fully loved. To be fully known by the one who knows all, to be fully known by the one who is love, that's heaven. And Jesus, living that life, believing that as the mission of his life, endures on the cross complete separation from God. Think about that. If heaven is to be with God forever, what is hell? Is it just the physical? Or is it the reality of being separated from God forever? When Jesus goes to the cross, he is Separated from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is not merely our high priest. He is also, it says in these verses, our propitiation. Propitiation is one of those Bible words. You never use it in normal life. Pass me the propitiation. You know, you never say propitiation. But what it means is the one who is going to take upon itself the punishment for another. As he goes to the cross, he pays the price that you and I own. As we now stare at the cross, we get to see the cost of our sin. Imagine for a moment 
the homeless person, and there's homeless people for a lot of different reasons, so this is not a judgmental thing about homeless people, but there are some who have chosen that lifestyle because of an addiction that they've chosen. And even then, we're not going to judge them because we don't know what led them to that addiction. God says, don't judge. We're not going to judge. That's his job, not ours. But just imagine that person who has chosen time, 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 time again to go to a drug rather than living life. And they've gotten to a place where they're laying in their filth and they're in maybe inside some horrible place. Maybe they're just outside under the elements doing God knows what to try and get that next fix. Now, imagine you could somehow rewind and take the version of them before they ever met drugs to that place. They got like a little bit of meat on their bones and they're healthy and they're clean and they're kind of bright-eyed. And you could walk them into that room and they could smell those smells and see that filth and see that pain, those consequences would that sight not make it that much more difficult to do the first drug <laughs> I don't have my verbs down but to, to participate that first time as we walk to the cross and stare at the cost for our sin we need to then understand the result of our sin our culture makes that list in 2 Timothy seem not that bad. The scripture and the cross help you to see those things for what they are. And yet, as you see, it's not going to transform you. Seeing is the beginning. Understanding that you're that loved is the beginning. But actually going to him in the moment of temptation, that's what's going to lead to change. So what it says in this passage. It says... Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. In the moment of temptation, you can go to Jesus. Now, imagine this mentally. You want something you know God hates, and you want it bad. The last person you're going to want to invite into that situation is Jesus, right? Let's put in a substitute. The last person you're going to invite into that situation is your mother. To bring your mother into that, what do you expect from her? Maybe even worse. Maybe it's not me because I'm like, you know, kind of casual and cool. But if you had like, uh, you know, like some stodgy old pastor, some like kind of crusty starched priest... And you just want that horrible thing and you know it's disgusting. You don't want anybody to know it, but you want it bad. The last person you're going to call is that crusty priest to walk in there with giant eyebrows and look down at you with a finger. You want that? Judgmental, just hateful. And their finger like gets longer and longer as they look down at you. And you get smaller... Why would you invite that into that moment of temptation? Not only do you not get what you want, but you just feel horrible. Jesus is saying, call to me in your moment of temptation, because when you invite me into that moment, you're not going to get that crusty, judgmental finger. 
You're going to get a high priest who is tempted in every way like you. Who can say, yeah, man, I know you feel this. I love you so much. I love you. I love you so much. I love you this much. He'll show you the, the nail holes. Show you the big, big spear hole in his side. I love you so much. Don't do this thing that's going to hurt you. That's a faithful high priest. That's the son of God that you would invite into that moment. And you'll say to him, I need this thing in order to feel important. And he'll say to you, I'm the maker of all things and I love you. I have established your importance. You don't need this thing. Or you'll say, I need this thing in order to feel good. And he'll say, taste and see that the Lord is good. You don't need this thing to feel good. I will make you feel good forever. You'll say to him, I don't have the strength to say no to this. And he'll say to you, I have put my spirit, the spirit of God that created all things into you. Yes, you do. You may not feel like you do, but you do. And then you'll say, I'm, I'm so alone. I need this in order to just deal with the loneliness. And he'll say, I'm with you and I'm not going anywhere. You'll say, if I don't do this, it feels like I'm going to die. And he'll say, I've already died for you. Go ahead and die. <laughs> I've taken care of that too. If you go to him, you will find that humble priest and the love that he has for you will overwhelm that temptation. If you see him, if you believe, if you trust that he is who he says he is, the historical fact of his death for you. I'm sorry, we're running over time, but not only can you go to him, you can go to his people because it is hard. It's hard to get there, to know who he is, to think about him that way, to, to go to his people that way. But the idea is that his people would have the same humble Love, non-judgmental love. Is that the case? I don't know. Probably not like it should be. But we're working that way. Jesus is changing us that way. Christians, when you wake up in the morning, I want you to feel the, the heaviness of the temptation on you so that when somebody comes up to you and says, I'm tempted this way, you can understand. Instead of the Bob Newhart, stop it, you can come alongside them and say, stop, but... I get it, and I love you, and I'm going to help you get through this. Jesus does give a power for transformation, but it's only for those who know and trust in him. Is that you? Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, bringing all this together in a human heart is a miraculous act that I'm asking you to accomplish I'm asking you, Lord, to introduce yourself today to people. Introduce yourself to those that say that they're far from you, Father, but introduce yourself this morning to those that say they're yours, and yet they don't go to you in times of temptation. They don't start each morning going to you to find the power source for the sin that they hate because they've made peace with their sins. And they've become crusty and judgmental. They've become 
just totally devastated and they continue to fail and live in their sin, Lord, teach us to be transformed by the love that you give us through your gospel. We trust you, Father. We ask these things in your Son's holy name. Amen.